MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, May 30th, 2022. Today, it's the subpoena show. The Department of Justice has issued several subpoenas related to the fraudulent slate of electors in Georgia. Five Republican lawmakers have defied lawful subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has issued over 50 subpoenas in her investigation into Donald's election interference. Judge Nichols has decided not to change his mind on 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2. Hitler cosplayer and January 6th rioter Timothy Hale Cusinelli has been convicted on all charges, and the Department of Justice has opened an inquiry into the Uvalde police. I'm your host, Allison Gill. All right, bigs going on this weekend, very bigs, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about all of it. There's a lot of subpoena news, so I'm calling this the subpoena show. Uh, a little bit later, though, I'm going to be talking with Sonar Luthra, and uh, he and I are going to discuss the uh, infrastructure plan, how that money is going to be spent, the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. Uh, I do have some quick headlines uh, to tell you about before we get into the hot notes. First up, the Department of Justice has opened an inquiry into the Uvalde police for their botched and reprehensible response to the Elementary school shooting, that massacre, uh, as we know, um, we're, we're, we were still reeling from Buffalo. Um, there's just not enough time in between these shootings now. Uh, feels like we might be at a tipping point, but the feds are going to look into it, into that response. Now, this is not a criminal investigation. I want everyone to kind of understand that. There's not supposed to be crimes or charges or prison time that comes out of this. People kind of like to jump to that. Uh, if they do find crimes, I assume they'll refer them to the proper, um, you know, agencies to to investigate further. But this is just to see what happened in that response to ensure that it doesn't happen again. As we know, they waited almost 90 minutes, 19 cops armed before anyone went in and they waited for the Border Patrol, um, Bortok, or Bartok uh, agency to get like the SWAT team, the special tactical unit for the Border Patrol to get there to do something. So that needs to be uh, looked into, and it's going to be. And I believe that Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse, asked for this probe, um, as did I, but they you know, probably listened to Senator Whitehouse more than me. Uh, so anyway, that is going to be happening. We'll be keeping you uh, updated on that. Also, that Hitler cosplayer guy with the Hitler mustache, Timothy Hale Cusinelli, has been convicted on all charges after failing to convince the D.C. jury that he is, he's an idiot. He didn't realize the Capitol is where Congress met. He didn't know he was going there to obstruct Congress. And speaking of obstructing an official proceeding, Judge Nichols, the one judge who has dismissed charges for 18 U.S. Code 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding, and was asked subsequently by the Department of Justice to reconsider his idiot position, uh, he's decided not to change his mind. The court is denying the DOJ's, um, I guess, their request to reconsider his his decision. He's he's one of like I think twelve other judges, eleven or twelve other judges have have upheld this charge. Uh, so Judge Nichols has decided to side with the insurrectionists. He will go down in history as a moron. But don't worry, this will not derail any of the investigations because of the massive amount of judges on the other side of this issue. Uh, but it is seems like a little crack 
that, that people could use as a defense. We shall see. And with that, it is time for the subpoena show. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. First up in the subpoena show, federal investigators have interviewed Republicans in Georgia. Federal investigators. This is the Department of Justice. This is not Fonnie Willis's investigation. This is the Merrick Garland, DOJ, Matthew Graves investigation. They have interviewed Republicans in Georgia about interactions with people in former Trump's orbit and his 2020 reelection campaign as the Justice Department's sprawling criminal probe into efforts to put forth alternate slates of electors, fraudulent ones, to displace Joe Biden electors expands to multiple states. In one case, FBI agents asked a prominent Georgia Republican whether he had direct conversations with Trump. That means the Department of Justice is investigating Trump. They're investigating this crime and they're asking about Trump. Quote, they just asked who talked to me, if anyone from the Trump campaign had been in touch with me. Did Giuliani talk to me? Did Trump talk to me? That's Patrick Gartland, who was set to serve as an elector, but backed out. He recounted how two FBI agents visited a home in Mar- his home in Marietta, Georgia, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Investigators have sought answers this month from Gartland and others connected to the GOP in Georgia and in Michigan, both in FBI interviews and in grand jury subpoenas for documents and testimony. Investigators are looking at whether the Trump campaign played a role in the submission of false electors uh, for those certificates, and that's according to people approached by the Justice Department. The federal probe's aggressiveness in the battleground states around the electors issue has not been previously reported. The Department of Justice has charged hundreds of rioters who stormed the Capitol, and in recent months, investigators broadened their scope, seeking information about people in more politically connected circles. And and they're being a little generous, or, uh, you know, they're not being generous enough here with what the DOJ is looking into. These subpoenas include VIPs who attended the rallies, VIPs who organized the rallies, and not just the January 6th rally, but the Stop the Steal rallies in November and December. They asked about people who were providing security at those rallies. They asked about people in both the executive and the legislative branches who impeded or attempted to impede the electoral count. And they've asked about now these fraudulent slates of electors, which we knew they were looking into, but now we have subpoenas in both Michigan and Georgia that we know about. That's all. That's just what we know about. The subpoenas issued to Gartland and others in Georgia are seeking communications with any member, employee, or agent of Trump or any organization advocating in favor of the 2020 re-election of Trump, including his official campaign. The subpoena also seeks, and these subpoenas, plural, also seek any communications with more than two dozen named Trump campaign officials, attorneys, and Georgia electors. CNN reported Wednesday that a recent subpoena related to the alternate slates of electors, fraudulent, sought communications with Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, Trump campaign lawyer Justin Clark, right-wing attorney John Eastman, and others. We already reported on that one. The question hanging over the Georgia GOP and the Trump campaign has been whether electors were put together, uh, whether electors put together fake slates to fraudulently override Biden's win, or if they believe they were submitting alternate alternate slates in case Trump's court challenges were successful. No court allowed Trump to overturn the election results. A spokesman for Trump did not respond to comment. Uh, no one has been charged with a crime in connection with the alternate fraudulent slates of electors. A spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which is overseeing this investigation, declined to comment. That's Matthew Graves overseeing this investigation, not Merrick Garland, Matthew Graves. 
And a special grand jury in Georgia's Fulton County is also investigating Trump's efforts. We know that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But these federal subpoenas have been issued to Republicans with a commonality, the people who were set to serve as electors for Donald, but ultimately backed out. That's who they're talking to first. Gartland had been a state elector until he became an election board official in 2020 and stepped down from the elector job because it was a possible conflict of interest. The FBI asked Gartland about the episode. He told the FBI he didn't have any direct contact with anyone in the Trump campaign, but hey, I'm a nobody, he joked. He joked. FBI agents have also spoken with Jason Shepard, another former Georgia GOP party official, multiple times this month, multiple times, asking if he had any conversations with Trump, uh, Trump campaign officials, anything like that. Gartland asked Shepard to fill in his spot as an elector, but Shepard did not ultimately serve in the role. He said he, too, received a subpoena for documents dating back to October 1st, 2020 and to testify before the federal grand jury this month. They were asking, quote, about the campaign and the slate in Georgia, trying to figure out what I may have had access to and been privy to. That's what Shepard said. Shepard said he didn't have any documents to hand over, but he encouraged the federal investigators to subpoena other state party officials. He said the electors who did serve may have thought they were helping the Trump administration and the Republican Party. Quote, the devil really has to be in the minutia and the details. Shepard said. Three other Georgia GOP electors backed out of the slate before January 6th last year, in, in addition to Shepard and Gartland. They either didn't respond to CNN's inquiries or declined to comment. Shepard was not asked specifically about communications with Trump, he said, adding he wouldn't have had any to report anyway. In Michigan, federal investigators have pursued, have pursued Republicans who had similar roles in 2020 to share information about the organization of Trump elector slates. Gerald Wall, Longtime Republican official in rural northern Michigan said about two weeks ago he arrived home to find two men in black outside of his garage. One was an FBI agent. The other was from the National Archives, he said. Instead of standing in the garage, I invited them into the house. Uh, the federal agents spoke to Wall for about 45 minutes asking him about the elector slate for Trump in Michigan in 2020, which was submitted to the federal government despite Biden winning there. Wall, now 85 years old, said he was battling severe coronavirus around the 2020 election, making it impossible for him to serve as an elector at that time. Another GOP member replaced him as an elector. I had nothing to do with the signing of the affidavits, Wall said uh, on Friday. The investigators, he said, just asked me how I felt about that. I said, yes, there were irregularities in Michigan. Before leaving, the agents handed Wall a subpoena for a grand jury testimony, but he told them he wouldn't be able to travel so far and had nothing to share. I told them in my shape, I'm not going to Washington. <laughs> wow. But what I find interesting here, kind of buried, is that there was a, a National Archives official with an FBI agent. You know, they have cops at the National Archives. Seems like they're working hand in hand here. All right, up next on the subpoena show, as many as 50, 50 witnesses are expected to be subpoenaed by a special grand jury that will begin hearing testimony next week in the criminal investigation into whether Trump and his allies violated Georgia laws in their state in efforts to overturn the 2020 election loss. The process, which is set to begin this Wednesday, day after tomorrow, is likely to last weeks bringing dozens of subpoenaed witnesses, both well-known and obscure, into a downtown Atlanta courthouse, bustling with extra security. Many roads have been shut down because of threats directed at staff in the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. But she's a badass. She doesn't give a fuck. She's subpoenaing these people anyway. 
Ms. Willis, a Democrat, has said in the past that Trump created a threatening atmosphere with his open criticism of her investigation. At a rally in January, he described the Georgia investigation and others focusing on him as prosecutorial misconduct at the highest level that was being conducted by vicious, horrible people. Ms. Willis has had staffers on the case outfitted with bulletproof vests. But in an interview on Thursday, she insisted the investigation was not personal. She says, quote, I'm not taking on a former president. We're not adversaries. I don't know him personally. He does not know me personally. We should have no personal feelings about him. She added she was treating Trump as she would anyone else. I have a duty to investigate, she says. And in my mind, it's not of much consequence what title they wore. Ms. Willis emphasized the breadth of the case. As many 50, as many as 50 witnesses have declined to talk to her voluntarily and are likely to be subpoenaed, she said. The potential crimes to be reviewed go well beyond that phone call Trump made to Raffensperger on January 2nd, during which he asked him to just find 11,780 votes, one more than it was needed to overturn the election results. Ms. Willis is weighing racketeering, among other potential charges, and said that such a case um, could have the potential to sweep in people who have never set foot in Fulton or made a single phone call into the county. Her investigators are also reviewing the slate of fraudulent electors that Republicans created in a desperate attempt to circumvent the state's voters. She said the scheme to submit fake electoral college delegates could lead to fraud charges, among other things, and cited her approach to the 2014 racketeering case she helped lead as an assistant DA against a group of educators involved in a cheating scandal in the Atlanta public schools. You've heard me mention this case multiple times, mainly in reference to how long it took, like two or three years. She says there are so many issues that could have come out uh, if somebody participates in submitting a document that they know is false. There are so many issues, she says. You can't do that. If you go back and look at the Atlanta public schools, that's one of the things that happened, is they certified these test results they knew were false. You cannot do that. She won that case. Mr. Raffensperger, a Republican, is likely to be one of the more well-known figures to testify before her grand jury. His office confirmed Friday that he and Gabriel Sterling, the chief operating officer for the Secretary of State's office, had received subpoenas and planned to appear soon before the panel, Wednesday, I believe. In the Republican primary on Tuesday, Raffensperger defeated a Trump-endorsed candidate, Representative Jody Heiss, who supported the former president's false claims of election fraud. Raffensperger will now vie for a second term in the general election in November, in which he's hoping to benefit from the national name recognition and bipartisan kudos that he received after standing up to Donald. Ms. Willis declined to divulge the names of witnesses who will be called before the grand jury, but two Democratic state senators, Jen Jordan and Elena Parent, said on Thursday they had already received subpoenas to appear. Both senators serve on a judiciary subcommittee that heard Rudy Giuliani and, who you know, we know Trump's lawyer at the time, give a presentation in December 2020 in which he laid out a number of baseless allegations of electoral fraud. Both Jordan and Parent said that they had already uh, had conversations pertaining to the investigation with Fulton County prosecutors. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported Friday that prosecutors planned to subpoena one of its journalists, Greg Bluestein, who was written about the efforts to overturn the election. The paper plans to seek to have the subpoena dismissed to prevent Bluestein from testifying. The Georgia investigation is one of a number of inquiries concerning Trump's political business and affairs that uh, he has faced since leaving office. They include one run by the Select Committee in the House of Representatives, that's the January 6th Committee, looking into his role 
uh, in January 6th. And of course, there's the Department of Justice investigation. Fonnie Willis said there's been no formal coordination between her office and the January 6th committee. But I mean, obviously, we're looking at everything that relates to Georgia that the committee is overturning. Now, that goes against reporting that we heard that she had gone up and gotten some stuff from the January 6th committee. But here she is saying no formal coordination. It could be this, you know, the select use of the word formal. Ms. Willis's inquiry is a criminal probe, and it has risen in prominence since prosecutors in Manhattan stopped presenting evidence to a grand jury earlier this year in an ongoing investigation into Donald and his businesses. Uh, Trump business interests are also the subject of a criminal investigation in Westchester County, New York. That's our friend Mimi Roca. A lot of people don't remember that Mimi is investigating Westchester. That's where that Seven Springs Estates is. You've heard me talk about that on multiple occasions. Ms. Willis said her investigation was unrelated to what was happening in New York. Quote, they were investigating apples and we were investigating oranges. Uh, I don't know the district attorney or other attorney general or, quite frankly, if I'm honest, any elected officials in New York or any of the prosecutors in New York. The Fulton County Special Grand Jury has 23 people. It was impaneled in early May, and it has up to one year to do its work. After completing its investigation, it will issue a report advising Ms. Willis on whether to pursue criminal charges. They're the investigatory special grand jury. That's how it works down in Georgia. But Ms. Willis said that beyond that limitation, it was difficult to talk about timelines. I don't know how many games folks are going to play, she said. I don't know how many times we're going to have to tell, uh, have to fight someone just to get them to come and speak to the grand jury and tell the truth. And there could be delays for those reasons. In a perfect world, I'd be done in the next 60 to 90 days. But I live in an imperfect world. And next up on The Subpoena Show, this is from our friend Hugo Lowell at The Guardian. And please take a moment, go to The Guardian, take a moment to support The Guardian. It is such an important source. And support Hugo Lowell. Follow him on Twitter. He says, Kevin McCarthy, top Republican in the House, indicated Friday to the House Select Committee that he would not cooperate with the subpoena unless he could review deposition topics and all the legal rationale justifying the request beforehand. The California congressman's response adopts an adversarial position similar to the other subpoenaed Republican Congress members, and it sets a conundrum for the panel over whether to entertain the request that also challenged the January 6th inquiry's legitimacy. McCarthy appeared to tell the select committee in an 11-page letter through his lawyer that he would not consider complying with the subpoena until House investigators turned over materials that would reveal what the panel intended to use in questioning ahead of the deposition. So at one point, at one side of his mouth, he's battling the, the committee saying, you're, you're illegitimate. And on the other side of his mouth, he's saying, oh, but in case you're legitimate, hand over all your shit so I can see it before I come in so I can get my story straight with my other five dudes. Sound good? Yeah, that's normally how shit works, right? The House Minority Leader also asked the panel to give him internal analyses about the constitutional and legal rationales justifying the subpoena. Oh, my God. It's legal and rational. It's a lawful subpoena. He knows this. He's just being a dick. Um, and, and, and he also wants to know whether the panel would adhere to one-hour questioning between majority and minority counsel, according to the letter. McCarthy's references to the minority counsel amounted to a thinly-veiled attack at the investigation, which Republicans have called illegitimate because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused last year to appoint some of McCarthy's picks for the Republican minority because they participated in the fucking coup. The accusations, however, are to some degree disingenuous. It was McCarthy who pulled all Republican participation, incensed at Pelosi's refusals, rather than name different members. Pelosi asked later to add Republican congressional members Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger to the panel. Swaths of judges have said this is a legitimate committee. No one has, no court has ruled they're illegitimate over and over and over and over again. 
McCarthy's request also appears phrased in a manner expecting the select committee to decline his requests. With a letter accusing the panel of issuing unprecedented subpoenas to five House Republicans in an illegal and unconstitutional manner. Quote, the select committee is clearly not acting within the confines of any legislative purpose. It is unclear how the select committee believes it's operating within the bounds of the law or even within the confines of any legislative purpose. You know, it's actually really clear, Kevin, multiple courts have determined that they are acting within the bounds of the law and the confines of a legislative purpose. A response from McCarthy largely mirrored that of Jim Jordan on Wednesday. In the letter obtained by The Guardian, Jordan said he would consider complying only if the panel gave all their shit over, all the material that put him under scrutiny. And like with Jordan, it was not immediately clear how McCarthy might act if the select committee refused his requests. The investigation's standards, operating procedures to date, has been to not share such materials with witnesses. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. Yeah, you don't do that. The panel's next move could have significant ramifications for both the inquiry and for Congress on the whole. If the panel refused the request and the five subpoenaed House Republicans in turn declined to cooperate, it could leave a large unanswered question about the Capitol attack. But it could also set up a problematic precedent for Republicans themselves who might like the idea of subpoenaing Democrats in partisan investigations should the GOP take control of the House as the Capitol, people on Capitol Hill expect after the 2020 midterm elections. I'm not so sure. I think the opposite. But in any case, they'd be setting themselves up for failure. Although Democrats like Leahy were like, go ahead, subpoena me. Why would I defy it? I haven't broken any laws. You know, bring me in. What are you going to refer me to Merrick Garland for prosecution? You fucking idiots. He didn't say that. I added the fucking idiots part, as I'm sure you know. A spokesperson for the select committee declined to comment. The resistance from McCarthy came as he and Jordan denounced the investigation as a kangaroo court in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. For House Republican leaders to agree to participate in this political stunt would change the House forever, they wrote. Like a, like an attack on the Capitol didn't. With McCarthy's refusal to appear for a deposition without first receiving materials from the select committee, at least four of the five Republicans subpoenaed to testify about their roles have now declined to comply with without some sort of negotiation. The current chairman of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, and his previous chairman, Andy Biggs, have both sent letters to the panel refusing to cooperate. It was not clear whether the fifth Republican, Mo Brooks, would comply. We shall see. But that wraps up this subpoena show today. All about subpoenas. Fonnie Willis subpoenas, Department of Justice subpoenas, fraudulent slates of electors, defied subpoenas by Republicans who participated in the coup. It's going to be an interesting next few months. That's for sure. And, and keep in mind, Department of Justice probably won't issue any indictments if they do, if they decide to prosecute. You won't see any within a 60-day time frame of the election. Merrick Garland is a by-the-book guy, just like Mueller was. I know that worries a lot of people. But don't forget, Matthew Graves is actually heading up these investigations. We haven't seen anybody resign in protest like we did in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which is not part of the DOJ, but still, that would be a signal that they are using their prosecutorial discretion at the Department of Justice to not prosecute the people who planned the coup. Look for those resignations. If they don't happen, I think they're still working. That's just my two cents. And from what I've seen so far, we're in a very weird time, but uh, we will keep an eye on it for you. And with that, we will be right back with Sonar Luthra. We're going to discuss infrastructure and the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. You don't want to miss this discussion. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everyone. It's AG. As you know, I used to struggle with sleep, and that's sad because sleep is my favorite thing. I couldn't fall asleep, and if I did, I couldn't stay asleep. I'd wake up feeling sore and tired. It was terrible. But it turns out I was sleeping on a mattress made for someone else. And that's a mistake. And so Helix came to my rescue. They know everyone is unique. So they have a quick online two-minute sleep quiz you can take that will match you with the perfect mattress for you and the way you sleep. After switching to my Helix mattress, my sleep problems were solved. Now I sleep very well at night. I wake up feeling refreshed. I get a good solid night's sleep. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm mattress. But they have soft, medium, firm mattresses, mattresses for spinal alignment, uh, body temperature regulating mattresses. They even have a Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. So if you're looking for a mattress, you hop online, helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. You take the two-minute quiz, you order the mattress, and it will come very quick and you will get the best night's sleep of your life. It's shipped for free. As you know, they have over 12,000 five-star reviews, number one best overall mattress pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Um, just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. Take that two-minute sleep quiz and uh, you will get the best night's sleep of your life. You have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights with no risk, 100 nights. And if you don't love it, there's nothing weird. They'll come and get it for you for free and they will refund all your money. So there's no risk here. It's so worth it. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am going to be talking to the founder and CEO of Water Canary, that's a company building a weather service for water to help governments, businesses, and communities manage 21st century water risk, which is a bigger deal than people are making it out to be. Please welcome Sonar Luthra. Hi, Sonar. Hi, Allison. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. It's really good to see you. Thank you. And the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because I've been so very frustrated about something very specific since oil prices started skyrocketing and everyone started complaining about gas prices a couple of weeks ago. And then the government, the U.S. government went to Mohammed Bonesaw over in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to get more oil. I've been like, hey, Congress, don't we have an unpassed, unlegislated part of the Build Back Better plan that focuses on climate? And wouldn't that neutralize Russia's stranglehold on energy markets rather than, you know, going to other dictators to get more oil? What are your thoughts on that? And... How does our dependence on oil, whether it's our own or Russia's, uh, impact water pollution and water access? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question. We we have very I don't even know where to, where to begin with that. So so essentially, yeah, right now we are watching in in Ukraine. We're, we've all watched oil prices spike. Looks like some of that is as a result of um, the negotiations you just mentioned, um, going to lower oil prices so so that people feel a little less pressure at the pump, so to speak. But the the larger question is, you know, why at a moment when we have leased the rights to excavate um, more oil and gas and coal across the world? then we really can afford to burn, afford to consume in this century. Like, why are we not using this as a moment to, to finance the transition that would actually free us from, you know, the exact vulnerabilities that Putin is using to, to, to cause pain and hardship across Europe? It's extremely confusing because this is something that has been talked about for decades 
It's something that the Build Back Better plan directly addressed. And yet the infrastructure bill, which was was the only you know bipartisan option that we had, um, really had to gut the direct climate provisions that would have allowed, for instance, um, you know, one of the biggest issues that that working class people are feeling right now has a direct result to lack of access to public transportation. If we had good public transportation systems, we would be in a much better place to control the costs of getting to work every day, controlling the cost of the commute. We'd also be able to reduce the largest source of pollution, the largest contributor to our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, in in the, I, I I should actually correct that by saying in the civilian population, we we burn a lot of fossil fuels in the military, and that's that's a related um, but slightly separate issue. So that's why I was a Navy nuke. I was like nuclear propulsion. Yes, let's go. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> we're at this moment where, you know, we this IPCC report that just came out. If you've been paying attention, there's a lot in it that was not new, but there is so much in it that is so staggering. And we effectively are we have gotten to the place where time is far more valuable than, than money. We are not going to be able to get any of the time that we are wasting back. So when you look at this war, we're looking at shocks to our economy. We're looking at um, complete transformation of trade relationships. All of these things that we kind of like we, we pretend can't happen quickly. They're happening right before our eyes, but we're just doing the wrong thing with it. So you're absolutely right to ask about this. And, you know, in terms of, you know, what we should be doing to respond to this, you know, sadly, a lot of it, you know, requires applying pressure to, you know, Senator Sinema and, you know, Senator Manchin, who have, you know, who are who are the reason why we don't have Build Back Better, who are the reason why we continue to pretend like we need coal, um, continue to pretend that there are... It's it's a it's it's a mess that we can really, you know, like lay at the hands of two members of our party who, you know, in many ways are acting against the interests of the party. But the larger questions really require us to, I think, take like a closer look at like the 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 local details about a lot of how our latest um, policy measures are going to be implemented. The, the bottom line is that until we have Democrats voting along Democratic Party lines, a lot of this is going to be problematic. The thing I think that your listeners should really be focusing on, though, in spite of all of this, is really what is happening at the hyper-local level in terms of implementation of this infrastructure bill, in terms of the demands that you, they're placing on their local executive representatives. Because that's actually where we can begin to apply pressure that does trickle down and does actually get to the place where other senators are going to need to start are, are going to need to engage with with their colleagues um, and demand a lot more from them. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who's running for city council here in San Diego, Tommy Howe. And when I was asking him about any infrastructure money that's going to come in from this bipartisan infrastructure bill why it's important to have, you know, climate activists be in charge of spending that money as opposed to, you know, people who are bought and paid for by oil or coal or or don't really care that much about the environment or are interested in other things. You know, somebody some people just want to fill potholes. 
<laughs> and so I think that that's really important. And yeah, I'm also with you. I don't understand what, you know, when Manchin is like, well, I don't want to, you know, I want a, a multi-pronged energy approach, which is what Obama did. But, you know, why we're just like, OK, multi-pronged energy approach. That sounds reasonable. Why we aren't just hitting them with the Russia cudgel. I just don't understand. I don't get it. But locally, we have a lot more power over how at least the infrastructure bill that was passed, the money from that, how that is spent. And that was going to be my next question to you, because, again, a lot of what's in that bipartisan infrastructure bill is, is sort of band-aids. It doesn't really get at the root of the problem. Yeah. But there are a lot of important implications and, and money appropriated in that bill for water. Can you talk a little bit about some of that money and some of that appropriation? Yeah. Um, so this bill is a massive amount of spending. We haven't spent this much money on infrastructure since I, I believe the Eisenhower administration. When it comes to water, what we're looking at is, you know, I believe $55 billion going towards water issues. Um, and that money is desperately needed. It is going to do a lot of good in the communities it reaches. You are going to see things like cities that are going to be removing lead service lines. At the same time, the, the actual money being appropriated for those is just woefully inadequate to put these problems behind us. So, you know, what we're kind of looking at on all fronts are like, we have the tools to solve the problems, but we have hands tied in terms of like how much reach that provides us. And that actually creates this weird institutional drag because you're kind of looking at states that are going to be able to, you know, make a quantum leap forward in certain types of infrastructure are going to be lagging behind in others. Mm -hmm. And what that ultimately means is that a lot of communities that lack the resources to pursue these funds, those are the ones that are going to continue to suffer because it can be a competitive process. It can be something. Now, I don't want to discredit the pieces of of legislation that are really groundbreaking. I mean, there are you know programs you know uh, for disadvantaged communities in this problem. There's a there's a small DAC program that is dedicated to get you know like small utilities up to Safe Drinking Water Act standards. In 2021, it had 25.8 million dollars. That was like the annual funding. Between 2022 and 2026, that program is now going to have five billion dollars. Like, so we are literally adding zeros to, you know, to the amount of spending that that was occurring previously. And like, that's really encouraging. But in the end, it's like, if you really want to repair all U.S. water infrastructure, the, the best figures that I've looked at, and there's a lot of debate over this, is that literally the one point, you know, 1.2, 1.5 trillion, depending on what you how you characterize how much is being spent here, you would literally need that much funding to dedicate it to water infrastructure, to get us to the place where we can put all this stuff behind us and be on the right footing to be facing climate issues. Yeah, it's it's like we're barely just getting enough to tread water, uh, so to speak, uh, as opposed to completely solving all of our issues. And finally, before I let you go, there's a, some upcoming Supreme Court decisions that could impact the Clean Water Act, which I think is about to celebrate its 50th anniversary. Can you tell us a little bit about what's at risk? So effectively, if you've never read the text of the Clean Water Act, I highly recommend to anyone who has you know 10 minutes to just sit down and read it. It's about to turn 50. 
it's one of the most beautiful and ambitious pieces of legislation that's ever passed in this country. I mean, it, it literally just aspires to return our waters back to their, you know, pre-industrial state. But the, the, the challenge that we encountered after 1972 was continually this kind of lowering of ambitions as it became frankly, profitable to complicate, well, how, what do we actually mean by this? What are businesses supposed to do? Now, some of, some of those complaints are totally legitimate. It's really hard to, it's really hard to enforce these things. But, you know, the, the, the key questions often come down to like, so where do jurisdictions begin and end? So the Supreme Court is now going, has, has decided to hear a case um, it's the second time it's gotten to the Supreme Court. So this is the second time. And it's literally a case against a family that uh, filled in a wetland without a permit. They were supposed to get a permit to do this. They frankly could have gotten a permit if they had asked for it. And when they were found in violation of the Clean Water Act, the EPA decided not to even prosecute them. So they've literally suffered they have not suffered at all from the Clean Water Act. But what what this has become is kind of a show trial that is all about questioning whether the ambiguity in the law and the latitude given to the EPA is, you know, effectively impinging on the rights of property holders. So in in agreeing to hear this case where a law was broken and no penalties, um, you know, the, the perpetrators did not face any penalties. What we're effectively doing is creating the cover to, uh, to to really like dismember a huge component of you know what type of power the EPA has at a moment when frankly mm-hmm. if we are not strengthening the ability the EPA has to enforce our laws, all not just our climate plans but you know our plans for just our future as a country are going to be severely compromised. So we have time over the next year. My hope is we will have a new, amazing Supreme Court justice confirmed before then um, who will hopefully change the tone on the court, change its outlook, change its perspective. But but at the same time, there's uh, it's difficult to see where a where a vote is going to come from to protect this really important law. So on the year that it's turning 50, we may be losing another piece of it. And that is something that will impact us at a local level and something that people should absolutely be taking the time to understand what types of local violations of a Clean Water Act are happening, that we literally at this moment have the power to you know, we have the power to enforce those laws. And some of that might not be there in a year. And uh, hope is that we use those laws while we can. Yeah. And despite the, despite our fantastic new Supreme Court nominee, the balance of the court will still be 6-3. And in a decision between property holders and clean water or property holders versus regulation, I can guess where this particular Supreme Court might come down on that issue. Yeah. Um, can I can I say one last thing along the lines of regulation before we go? No, everybody will be right. But no, I'm kidding. Of course, of course. Not. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I've always wanted to do that. I, I think the last point worth making here is just that regulation is complicated, and part of what's been happening because, and this isn't just a U.S. problem. This is a world problem that like we're not making enough progress on climate change. 
there's been a big shift towards uh, creating systems so that companies will begin to self-regulate themselves. At least that's the story behind it. A lot of those efforts are, you know, frankly, just marketing. You know, they're frankly ways of just saying, well, we found a new way to measure our impact on the environment that, you know, effectively meant excluding a lot of the pollution we're doing in parts of the world as another corporation. As a result, we are now a much more sustainable company. Yeah, without actually making any without changes. Without making any changes. Or we we will put, you know, 1% of our funding towards uh, transitioning away from oil as an oil company and talk about it as a record-breaking investment in clean tech. So it's easy to be cynical when you look at those things. But the thing that people should be thinking about is that there are very few companies that are holding our, com- our, our planet hostage. Very, very few. A lot of them are abandoning oil rights in Russia right now. A lot of changes now are happening that we never thought could happen this quickly. And so it's really important at this moment that we look at where pollution comes from and look at how we can get those actors to change what they're doing. Because if we expect it to happen with an election, if we expect it to happen through legislation alone, we're playing a game that, you know, frankly, um, is, is, is one that they're very good at. If we can actually take this more to them and really put their feet to the fire, that's the thing that is, is going to make the most of the time that we have, especially when we're watching the Ukrainian people making the, the ultimate sacrifice, you know, for, for their country we need to be inspired by that and be doing something along those lines here. Yeah. And that's one of the lessons of this invasion is is just how quickly we can do the right thing when we need to. So I appreciate your time today. Can you tell everyone where to find you and follow you? Uh, Yes, I'm on Twitter um, at Sonar, S-O-N-A-A-R. And and my my company is uh, watercanary.com. We, uh, you know, we essentially help clients measure and manage water risks that our institutions haven't been adapting to. Um, so that runs a wide gamut of, of issues from supply chains to a lot of the issues we talked about today. And so if you have any issues, reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you're doing. Um, it's, it's so important. Uh, Sonar Luthra. Everybody, thank you for listening today. We're going to hold on to your good news stories from the weekend, and we're going to have like a good news bonanza tomorrow because we're all going to need it when we get back. Uh, and uh, Dana's going to be back tomorrow. So I wanted to save all that good news for when she gets here. It's just so much more fun when we get to read it together uh, and sort of revel in everyone's good news. So I wanted to thank you. We had an extra long A block today talking about all the subpoenas and investigations that are going on. Uh, we will also keep you posted on what the feds find out about the response, the police response in Uvalde, Texas, which was just, it's just absolutely egregious. I, I don't even, I, I, there's so much anger. I, it's, I can't even express how upset I am about that. And I don't even have kids. Um, I don't think anyone, I don't think you have to, 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 to to see that failure and just be so gut-wrenched by it. It's just a gut punch. So we're going to keep an eye on that investigation. I'm very interested to see what the feds find out uh, in that probe. And I'm glad that they opened it. If they didn't, that would be a travesty. 
Uh, again, it's not a criminal probe, but again, I don't, I've asked some experts what happens if they find crimes. I assume they'll be referred. If I get a different answer, I'll let you know. And we'll be back tomorrow with Dana. Thank you so much, everyone, um, for your support. And thanks to our patrons. You make this show possible. Um, and I hope that you enjoy your ad-free episodes of this and the MSW Book Club and Muller She Wrote. It means the world to us that you support us in that way. If you want to become a patron for all three shows for just three bucks a month, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote, or you can go to Supercast and search for us as well. That's another way to to get a premium subscription. All right. Uh, again, I'll be back with Dana tomorrow. Uh, until then, please, everyone, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>